This is Local Color, distributed by Your Public Studios, a podcast dedicated to the artists, entrepreneurs, and social innovators using their talents to make Baltimore and the DMV a better place. I'm your host, Jason V, and on the show today, Eric Costello, Baltimore City Councilman for the 11th District. Costello moved to Baltimore after finishing school in upstate New York and worked for the General Accountability Office as an IT analyst. After a stint as president of the Federal Hill Neighborhood Association, Costello combined his analyst background with his passion for service to make a successful bid for city council, a position he's holding for the foreseeable future. Hey everyone, Jason V here, Grandmaster Podcaster. I'm dropping in to say thank you to my listeners and supporters. Two months ago, I announced my expansion into politics, and if the analytics are to be trusted, you've been enjoying my episodes with elected officials. When I made the decision to cover politics, I said I wanted to educate, entertain, and energize Baltimore residents so they become more civically engaged. On a local and national scale, elections are next year, and if the current news cycle is any indication, 2024 is going to be an explosive year. Hopefully in the next few weeks I can announce some stuff I've been cooking up and even flex my creative skills, branching into different forms of content. For now, keep it locked on Local Color as I continue this journey. Speaking of journeys, Councilman Eric Costello made the drive a lot of New Yorkers make, moving from the Empire State down to the land of pleasant living, which, if you don't know, is the, uh, I guess, nickname or moniker for Maryland. But he didn't grow up in the city. Councilman Costello is from a small town upstate, and a fun fact about said town, it's where the flight simulator was created. I visited Costello's hometown, and um, let's just get started. (laughs) What was it like growing up in Binghamton? Because I only stopped there, and I was just like, I I, I don't know how y'all do it. (laughs) Small town. A lot of the industry there has left. Uh, So the main economic driver in that town now is really Binghamton University, uh, which is one of the SUNY schools. It's one of SUNY's flagship institutions. That's in the next town over in what's known as Vestal, New York. So once you finished up at SUNY Oneonta, you got your uh, graduate degree from Syracuse. What was it like? Was there really much of a change between like Binghamton and the surrounding area and then going up to Syracuse? Because that's that's still a bit of a hike, right? It's it's about an hour away. It's it's all pretty similar upstate New York. Um, one thing you can certainly expect is a lot of snow, like four or five months out of the year. Um, growing up, uh, did my master's work up at Syracuse and was actually on a scholarship from the federal government called Scholarship for Service, which was run out of the National um, Science Foundation that was established uh, when President Clinton was in office uh, to try and strengthen the federal workforce in cybersecurity. So as part of that scholarship program, federal government paid for education and provided a stipend in return, you had to return service to the federal government. So there was assistance through that program to get a job in the federal government. And the overwhelming majority of those uh, IT and cybersecurity jobs, of course, were in the DMV. And that's how I ended up uh, in, uh, in, in the area, moving down here uh, and, and pursuing that career with the federal government. You began working as an as an IT analyst, I believe, at the Government Accountability Office. Can you explain what that office does and how you fit in? Well, I know how you fit in because I work in IT, so you probably were helping a lot of people. But can you explain to people that don't know what the Government Accountability Office is for? 
Sure. Um, it was established in the early 1900s. It's in the legislative branch. So the GAO uh, reports to and serves at the pleasure of Congress. They are a nonpartisan agency which provides reviews mainly of federal programs, either at the request of uh, chairs of committees or members of Congress, or uh, in some cases, it's it's prescribed in law that the GAO will uh, produce audits of you know, various functions in, in the federal government. Uh, formerly known as the General Accounting Office, I think there were 13 different mission teams and I was on the IT team. So we didn't necessarily do IT support for folks. It, it was more so doing reviews of federal programs that spent federal dollars that were major IT investments. So those programs ranged from, you know, $50 million in spending to $2 billion in spending. A typical audit would last <clears throat> a little under a year. Did a lot of work at Department of Defense. Uh, did some work at Housing, housing and Urban Development. Uh, did some work on the Recovery Act. Uh, the uh, federal government-wide telecommunications contracts. And we would look at these programs and determine if they were following best practices, how they could improve. We would measure cost savings. So in the little over eight years that I worked there, I, I worked on $274 million in taxpayer savings at the federal level. It sounds like a big number. There are people uh, that worked at GAO with, with much bigger numbers, hundreds of millions and billions of, of dollars. Um, spent a little bit of time with uh, auditing Department of uh, Homeland Security, also the U.S. Small Business Administration. This is a really interesting experience over, over those eight years to really get an insider's look at how the federal government works each and every day. Mm, that's interesting. And that that informs me of my uh, my next question. I was going to ask. How do you feel like your skills as an IT analyst prepared you for public office? Because I had an idea of what an analyst does as far as IT goes, but as you explained it, you're really just kind of making sure things are uh, above board, uh, under budget, on time, above board. Uh, so I can only assume that that lends itself to serving in public office. Uh, so we'll just go ahead and continue forward. Um, your first official position, as far as I could see, uh, in public office was president of the Federal Hill Neighborhood Association in 2012. Can you talk about your path to that position when you moved down to this area? Did you land in the in the Fed Hill area? I originally moved to Otterbein, and I was in Otterbein for a couple of years and then bought my home in Federal Hill. Um, went to a community meeting, uh, myself and a group of neighbors. We had the thought that the community association should be positive, should be focusing on you know, ways to build community, whether that was neighborhood cleanups or block parties or performing constituent services to help uh, residents with issues like parking passes and code enforcement and things like that. Uh, we had a newsletter that we restarted when I became the president of the organization. We really tried to make it community centric. So we would reach out to small businesses in the neighborhood, uh, try to generate revenue for the community association uh, and then use that revenue for community building uh, activities. Uh, we would make contributions to nonprofits uh, that were in the neighborhood, like Baltimore Station, who, is help, who does work uh, to help um, uh, men, specifically veterans with substance abuse issues, or 
South Baltimore Learning Center, uh, which does really great work uh, around adult literacy programs, and really tried to kind of tie all of that in together. At the time when I got involved, uh, the Neighborhood Association was involved in a number of different pieces of litigation. Uh, it had become a very tense place that had turned off a lot of neighbors, and, and we wanted to find a way to kind of open it back up and make it more inviting and inclusive. Around that same time that you were uh, part of the uh, Fed Hill, Federal Hill uh, Neighborhood Association, um, according to Maryland.gov, you had also started sitting as a board member on a lot of boards for, I guess, nonprofit and other types of companies. And I've talked to other people about this before, like the responsibilities of a board member. But in your own words, what, what is the purpose of being a member or being on a board? Like, what is the difference between being a board member and then being like a VP that works at a company? So it really all depends on on the board. Many of those boards that I served on at the time were in an advisory capacity. So the, the parking authority advisory board or the local development council for casino impact aid or the digital Harbor high school advisory board uh, and really working with those different groups on on what their missions were um, and helping them move forward. Uh, board member being a little bit different from working for the actual organization. Uh, so these are all unpaid volunteer positions. Um, so a little bit different than, than working for the organization uh, itself. Mm, okay. And then I can only imagine being a board member or the type of work that you have to do pushing a mission forward. It's kind of similar to your time at um, the, the the neighborhood association. Everybody has that common goal and you just got to find a way and work with people. And unfortunately, um, compromise seems to be the name of the game if uh, you want to go far and be successful in those types of uh, positions. Absolutely. Compromise is key and, and figuring out how to find a, a middle ground, uh, recognizing that folks aren't always going to get everything that they want, but that they need to get something and you need to work toward that middle ground. Uh, and that's very similar to, to what I do now in my role as a council member with the city council. Yeah, let's go ahead and talk about that now. So as mentioned before, you are a city council member for the 11th district. And I think, is, is that the largest or one of the largest districts in Baltimore? It's the largest district in the city in terms of population. So we've seen some pretty expansive population growth since the last census uh, prior to this one back in 2011, the last time we went through redistricting. It's the geographic center of the city. So it includes, I'm doing this all off of memory, so bear with me here, uh, Bolton Hill, Madison Park, uh, Druid Heights, Marble Hill, Upton, Heritage Crossing, State Center, McCullough Homes, Seton Hill, Towns at the Terraces in Northeast Poppleton, Mount Vernon, all the Central Business District, Downtown's West Side, Ridgely's Delight, Otterbein, Sharp Leadenhall, Spring Garden Industrial Complex, uh, Port Covington, South Baltimore, if I didn't say that, Federal Hill, Federal Hill South, uh, Riverside, Key Highway Corridor, and Locust Point. So it's a very uh, diverse district. Uh, currently, the, the population is probably about 47% white, 43% black. Uh, you have a pretty diverse array of uh, neighborhoods and neighborhood topologies, uh, four different hospitals, four different universities, 
a number of uh, Main Street type uh, residential slash business district areas, uh, three of the city's six public markets uh, in the Avenue uh, Market on Pennsylvania Avenue, Cross Street Market and Lexington Market, mm -hmm. um, two private markets, uh, one in Port Covington and Mount Vernon Marketplace. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I think five of the city's six community benefits districts. So there's a lot of things going on day to day bustle. Yeah, I can imagine. You were tapped to run for the 11th district after Bill Cole, who was the previous city councilman. I think that was like 2012, 2013, I believe. He had left that position to become president of the Baltimore Development Corporation. So in your opinion, why do you think people believed that you would be good for that job? Well, there's a there's a vacancy process when someone steps down from the council, former councilman Bill Cole was appointed to head up BDC, which is our quasi-governmental economic development agency. That kicked off the vacancy filling process. Uh, that process is laid out um, in the uh, city council rules. And in short, when there's a vacancy, uh, the council president will appoint a group of uh, community advisors that will make a recommendation to the, the full city council. Uh, they include two members of the city council from geographically adjacent districts, as well as um, certain breakdown of, of residents and, and, and folks. So like X number of business leaders, X number of faith leaders, X number of, of residents from within the district. And they'll conduct uh, interviews, which come in the form of a public hearing. You know, I participated in, in that hearing. I, I think there were 14 or 15 of us and um, received the most votes from that group. And then that recommendation was made to the full city council that voted on my appointment. When you were making your case for that council seat, do you feel like the pressure was on in that public hearing? Did you ever have to do anything like that when it was just with the Federal Hill Neighborhood Association? Or was this all like a new experience and you kind of had to learn as you go? Be being a neighborhood president, um, was helpful in terms of uh, some of the pressure associated with that. I had um, chaired or presided over some some pretty terse community meetings with 100 plus folks that you know had turned into into uh, had had gotten pretty um, pretty pretty intense. So that was certainly good experience for what was to come. Uh, that that appointment hearing was certainly something new and just try to put my my best foot forward and, and talk about my vision for the role and how to work with with the communities within, within the district. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, I continue my conversation with City Councilman Eric Costello. I'm Jason V. This is Local Color. We'll be right back. I'm Jason V. This is Local Color, and my guest is Baltimore City Councilman for the 11th District, Eric Costello. So you've been in your position as the city councilman, uh, I want to say, is it, I think, almost 10 years now, with 2025, 10 years? Yeah, ne next year it'll be nine years. Yep. Oh, okay, nine years. So I End of the term will be 10 years. Yeah. Uh, time, see, okay. time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, earlier this year... Uh, it was reported in the Baltimore Banner that you had run a um, snap mayoral election poll that included our mayor, uh, Sheila Dixon, or I'm sorry, our mayor, Brandon Scott, Sheila Dixon, 
Bill Henry and you as well. Uh, but since then, you've declared that you aren't running for anything except for the re-election of your seat. And the reason why is you want to, quote, hold the city accountable, the administration and agencies accountable. Do you feel like the city and its administration have failed certain neighborhoods or broken promises to certain people? And have you ever felt like in recent experiences, just being on the job, you felt like certain people are are saying one thing or doing another, not really uh, giving their constituents a fair shake? Yeah, a couple things. So that's the reason why I decided to run again in the 11th. And there are a number of projects that I'd really like to see through. Um, Some of those projects include the the revitalization of the Avenue market on Pennsylvania Avenue, uh, some major capital uh, plans that we've been working on at Solo Gibbs Park and Sharp Leadenhall. Uh, the revitalization of the parks around the Washington Monument and Mount Vernon, uh, and of course, Harbor Place uh, in the Inner Harbor, just to name a few. A lot of the work that I've done in my nine years on the council has revolved around economic development, um, creating job opportunities, um, large-scale capital projects within the district, um, and you know, bringing that that auditing background. So the first piece of legislation that I worked on was a charter amendment, which redrew how we conduct audits in the city. And using one of the things that, that we use at GAO, which is recommendation follow-up to make sure that agencies are being held accountable. So for example, if you're the Department of Transportation and we did an audit on uh, the extent to which DOT is properly managing streetlights, right? Streetlights are important. Uh, we need them for uh, pedestrians. We need them for motorists. They, they you know, when streetlights are on, uh, we see reduced crime in neighborhoods, right? So that's an important thing. And one of those recommendations uh, might be, and this is all hypothetical, uh, employees at DOT need to be better trained in how to manage streetlights. It's one thing for the auditor to make that recommendation. It's another thing for the administration to follow through with it so that it's not a repeat finding. So we know that the agency is getting better because when we improve uh, the efficiency and the efficacy of government, um, that results in cost savings. And we can do one of two things with those cost savings, right? We can reduce the tax burden, which is a problem in the city, or we can expand the scope and quality of the services which we provide. Um, which is also a, a problem in Baltimore City. And it's a problem for most local governments throughout the country, especially for uh, major American cities. So, you know, I've spent a lot of time in this role making sure that uh, the mayoral administration, this is the fourth mayor I've had the opportunity to work with, uh, that that administration is doing the things uh, that they are supposed to be doing. Uh, there's certainly been no shortage of, of frustrations. Um, you know, I, I want the administration to be successful. If the administration is successful, then the city is successful. Uh, and that's, that's what I'm here for. Uh, so a lot of that work is around holding them accountable. Um, for example, recently you may have heard of approximately $10 million in federal funding for homeless services that we are uh, in in risk of of losing and likely going to to lose and not be able to be reimbursed by the federal government. Mm-hmm. So it's specific areas like that where you know working to make sure that citizens are getting 
you know, what they're paying for and what they deserve and that the administration is following through on those commitments. Got you. Um, and then I was thinking of this as you were talking, one of those issues that I still have to deal with on a consistent basis is, uh, is the, the recycling. I know that DPW has its fair share of issues, but is there any, are, are we ever going to get back to weekly recycling or we just have, are we stuck with what we got for now? Well, the administration has uh, the most recent commitment is by April 1st of 2024. Mm -hmm. um, we need to get back to weekly curbside collection of recycling. Mm -hmm. uh, we did that for a number of years and we're able to successfully execute that uh, with the tax burdens that we have in the city. I think that city residents and city businesses are entitled to a core level of service. Uh, which in many areas, such as recycling, uh, we are not currently getting. Part of the problem with recycling is that this administration rolled out uh, what, what are known as MRCs or municipal recycling cans. Those are the uh, blue recycling cans. And the administration and the Department of Public Works did not provide the appropriate level of education to residents around recycling. Um, did not provide, you know, the appropriate level of, of code enforcement around folks leaving those blue cans out on the curb. So what you've seen is a city that maybe had 50 or 55,000 uh, addresses that were recycling on a regular basis. Uh, that number has jumped up to 160 or 170,000 uh, containers that need to be collected each week. In addition to that, because the city hasn't done an adequate job of educating citizens on how to recycle, you're seeing contamination rates uh, double or triple as a result of that. Uh, so we have a recycling program uh, that, that was not necessarily on the strongest ground, which is on much shakier ground now as a result of the rollout of that program. We're not putting a, a rover on Mars here. NASA handled that a couple of years ago. We're talking about a basic core city service yeah. And the the my expectation and the expectation of the people I represent is that we get that service resumed uh, and get back to a place where it's done correctly and and on a consistent basis and and we should be able to get there. I'll mark it on my calendar, but that is April Fool's Day, so hopefully uh, the city will be able to come through and people won't feel like they're being pranked. Referencing your IT background again. How would you rate Baltimore's progress on closing the digital divide for neighborhoods in need? Um, I know that COVID, that was you know, nation or worldwide, really, and um, lack of access to technology was something that really came into focus. So if, we had, if you could give Baltimore a grade on closing the digital divide, uh, what would it be? I'd make it a little more expansive. I'd, I'd say we really have three areas to to focus on uh, closing the, the digital divide is one of those. The other is improving our security posture post the ransomware attack in 2019. Right. Uh, and finally, third is IT is, a, is as you know, as a, as a sysadmin is a shared service that all of our internal customers in the city, that's, that's agencies uh, that they rely on in order to do their work. Uh, and we need to utilize IT to help make uh, them more efficient and effective. So on the cybersecurity stuff, we've made some pretty significant investments under the leadership of uh, Todd Carter, who's a, our CIO, who came in shortly after ransomware. I think uh, Todd and his team have done an exceptional job on that front. 
we've made some improvements, but there's a lot more work to go in terms of really being an effective shared service provider within city government. Part of that is the city making uh, new investments, bold investments in IT uh, to really help bring uh, many of these agencies into the 21st century. You, you hear that all the time when we talk about the BPD consent decree mm-hmm. uh, and, and technology implementation. And finally, the, the issue of the digital divide. Uh, we've done some really good work in the city around that, um, but we also have a lot more work remaining. We've made some pretty significant um, funding commitments through ARPA, but we haven't seen those, those dollars uh, go out the door yet and, and really implement that necessary work. You're a public official. You've been in the public eye, as you've said, going on nine, 10 years now. And social media is also a very public space and elected officials have found that that's a really effective way to get their message out. Uh, But of course, if it has an internet connection in a comment section, there's going to be just vitriol and negativity um, about you, about your decisions, pretty much about everything. Um, How do you deal with that negative chatter? Because when I was doing my research for this, I saw, you know, negative comments about you just from basic stuff like, I don't like the way he talks or something like that to like people just saying, oh, Eric Costello is a straight up racist. So how do you deal with that negative chatter on social media? And how do you like, how do you keep yourself mentally um, out of the trenches? As a rule of thumb, I I try to um, not be opinionated on social media and really just provide, um, you know, basic information that that's verified. Um, So if I'm posting something, uh, people checked on it, that it's accurate information and trusting that, that the people that I represent and the people that are viewing it, um, can use that information to, you know, impact their daily lives, whether it's, you know, a bus line is down or there's going to be road work on this specific block, or there was a crime that happened at this time in this location. So you're going to see an increased police presence or we're working on building a new playground. So the current playground at the park is gonna be down for three months, uh, whatever the case may be. So just trying to get that information out, um, recognizing that everyone has an opinion and and social media is a great tool uh, to keep folks engaged and to keep them updated on on what's going on in the communities they they live and work and and visit. Um, And just, you know, trying not to to take it personally and, and just, stay grounded in the work. Have you ever dealt with that in real life? Like you've been at the grocery store or something and someone comes up to you and they're like, Councilman Costello, like I'm going to give you a piece of my mind. Has that ever happened to you? More frequently than you could ever imagine. Oh my God. How do you handle it? Do you just like listen to them and then you're like, all right, have a good day. Just smile and listen. And if there, if there's something I can do to try and help, um, I usually ask them to, to follow up with me with an email or a phone call. Um, and just just try and help them with the issue. One final question in that similar vein before we wrap up. When I was uh, emailing you back and forth to um, set this interview up, I noticed that it was you that was responding to me, whereas with a few other people that I've talked to, they have a team. So do you have a team uh, that you work with, or are you just like, let me, let me, let me just do all this myself? I have a, a staff, uh, city council members usually have around three full-time staff members. Uh, I happen to have three. Um, we've used different models in the past. Um, 
but I, I really like to, to make that initial response or contact. Um, mm -hmm. when folks email me, um, I manage my own schedule. I, th I think that's mm -hmm. important. Um, I have great staff members who I trust. Uh, but I, you know, I think like when it comes to coming up with your schedule and, and figuring out there, there's only 168 hours in the week and there's an expectation that I'm going to be at everything. Uh, so I try and make those decisions um, based on where I'm needed, what's going on in the district and, and throughout the city. Um, so I like to, to have eyes on those types of things. Um, there's a lot of things that I, that I delegate out to my staff because I, I trust them and, and they're great at what they do. Uh, but kind of those, those initial responses, I, I like those to come directly from me. Gotcha. Okay. Last question here before we wrap up, are there any initiatives or bills coming across the city council's desk that residents should know about? And um, how can people get in touch with you if they uh, want to make a respectful request of their uh, representative? Sure. I, I love when folks reach out uh, just to hear their opinions on, on bills or things that are going on in the community. Uh, best way to reach out to me is email eric.costello at baltimorecity.gov. Uh, you can always call the office 410-396-4816. Um, staff monitor uh, those calls from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. and I monitor them the rest of the time. So we get a we get an email. If you, if Jason, if you call my office tonight at 11 o'clock at night, we'll get an email with an MP3 of of that audio that you leave on the voicemail line. Uh, so if it's an emergency, we'll get back to you right away or as soon as humanly possible. Uh, in terms of bills that are coming up, really the big one is going to be the redistricting bill. We actually have uh, a committee hearing on that uh, tomorrow at 3 p.m. Uh, so that's going to determine uh, the size and the geography of, of the council districts for the next decade. Uh, those will go into effect after um, we're sworn in for the next term. So those won't go into effect until uh, December of 2024. Uh, but the the district lines will inevitably change in the next uh, probably 45 days. Uh, so so that will be the new district starting in December of 2024. Gotcha. Okay. I looked at a district map, and I think where I live, I live in Reservoir Hill, so that's 7th District. I think doesn't that share like a border with uh, the 11th District? It, it does, yes. It, uh, the the border that's shared is is North Avenue, and then over to Bloom Street, which is about three blocks shy of Penn North. Heads down Bloom Street southwest until you get to the intersection of Pennsylvania Avenue, North Fremont Ave, and Bloom Street, right over there by St. Peter Claver. And then the Seventh District also borders on the west side of North Fremont Avenue. Mm, gotcha. All right. Well, that is all I have. Uh, Councilman Eric Costello, thanks so much for the opportunity to talk with you. Jason, thanks a lot. Really appreciate you having me on. That was Councilman Eric Costello, Baltimore City Councilman for the 11th District. Find him on Instagram at Councilman ETC. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Local Color. The podcast is hosted and produced by me, Jason V. The podcast is distributed by Your Public Studios. New episodes of Local Color will be released the second and fourth Wednesday of each month. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. Learn more about Local Color at WYPR.org.